One of the gifts that my wife and I have given to our children is bad eyesight. So far, two of three of our kids are wearing glasses. But the funny thing is, they didn't realize that their eyesight was bad until the doctor told them so. The way they saw life was just what life was. And it wasn't until they put on glasses that they realized not just how bad their vision was, but how clearly they could see life if they were willing. For those with myopia, you can actually go through life pretty well without seeing well. Myopia, also known as nearsightedness, means that you could see things close to you clearly, but things that are far are blurry. And if we're honest, this is how we often go through life. Our eyes are fixed on what's right before us, but the things ahead, the eternal life that God's inviting us to, we don't even notice how blurry that can get. And if we're not careful, this spiritual myopia can actually be the source of so much of our suffering. The good news is, God wants us to see clearly if we're willing. You're listening to episode 141 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for reconnecting Phil and I. And yeah, I'm just excited to see where this conversation is going to go because you've already shown so much depth within this topic of sitting and suffering. I could think that there isn't more, but yet you keep on revealing yourself. So in that spirit, we just acknowledge that whatever we're bringing to the table, you can do abundantly more. So we give you our words and our thoughts and our questions and our answers. We give them to you knowing that you can do amazing things. So we thank you in advance. We pray that you are honored and glorified. And we just look forward to seeing how you work through this conversation. All this we pray in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So Phil, you and I only recently met, but we've already had a nice long conversation on your podcast, Church Solutions. And so I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. But before we jump in, for the people that are listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? (laughs) I'm going to be 65 years old in February of 2023, and I can't believe I'm saying that. (laughs) I started in ministry when I was 18 years old, and just recently. I don't know if I want to use the word retired because I've been bivocational the last probably 14 years. I I work with a company called StreamingChurch.tv, and we provide streaming video for ministries and churches. In fact, that's what we exclusively do. I know the owner of the company, when I was on staff at the church in the 90s, uh, that's how I met him. We used to play a lot of basketball together and stuff. Steve Lacey's his name. Great guy. And my church actually started using one of his products when I started a church in Kansas back in 2001. And I used one of his products back then. And then uh, when I eventually ended up working for him, we started doing streaming videos. But I've been doing ministry, working with churches pretty much the whole time, either on staff or volunteer or as an executive director, executive pastor senior pastor for eight years, helped start a couple churches. Mm -hmm. And recently, the end of 2020 is when I uh, resigned a position I was at as executive pastor. I resigned just because it was a part-time gig. We were really busy at streamingchurch.tv because there was the pandemic (laughs) and everybody didn't do streaming video. All of a sudden had to do streaming video. So I was really busy. Plus the church was going through some changes and I thought, you know, this is a good opportunity for me to just bow out. Mm -hmm. So I've been in ministry pretty much all my adult life. 
And I still am obviously working with churches because we do streaming video and we work with them. And then the Church Solutions podcast has been going for over 10 years Mm -hmm. and we interview pastors and we talk about tech and we talk about ministry stuff that's not tech related. So there's a lot going on. (laughs) I'll stop there and you can ask me questions if you want, but otherwise we'd be here all day talking about my old age and everything I've done. Well, and there really is so much in that that we could tap into. But even earlier, one of the things that you said when I was talking about how we're doing the season sitting in suffering, you made the comment, man, there's so much you could talk about there. <laughs> and so yeah. when you think mm-hmm. about this topic, as you've been thinking about this conversation, what's God been bringing to your heart? Well, when we talk about suffering, I think, first of all, it's something everybody experiences. And I think it's amazing we get surprised (laughs) when we have to go through something. But the truth is, it's just part of life. Suffering's part of life. There's several types of suffering. This is my teacher coming out here, so please forgive me. I'm pretty linear. (laughs) There's physical suffering. There's emotional suffering. And I would call the third type of suffering the suffering of changes, or impermanence. Things change. Everything in life changes. It's just part of life. Things change. And so physical, emotional, and then dealing with change, those are the sufferings that I've experienced and I think many people experience in life. And so we go through all those things and that's how we start off. And I think it's important that when we're going through something at the time, personally, I think we need to sit back and think for a moment, okay, what am I going through here? I need to pause I just mentioned my age. Well, I'm going through arthritis in my hands, Mm. you know, physical suffering, not fun because I have a Jeep that I like to work on. And Mm. anytime I turn a screwdriver, it hurts. (laughs) Probably need surgery. I had some heart issues about six years ago where I had to have a stent put in and playing basketball, started to have pain and turned out I had 99% blockage. So I was very fortunate to, you know, go through all that and come out on the other side, but that was physical suffering. But then there's emotional too, where, you know, something happens, somebody in your family goes through something and you suffer because they're suffering. Maybe somebody does you wrong. I've recently, probably a number of years ago, experienced really quite a bit of suffering in my whole family because of something that happened to me with the church, you know, and then there's the change thing that I just mentioned earlier. Change is happening all the time. And it's not that change causes suffering. It's that we don't want things to change. (laughs) We want things to be the way they are, especially if we're in a happy season. Mm -hmm. We don't want that to change. But the truth is, it will change. Yeah. Well, and then you get the hard parts where those things combine. So, you know, just to get the example of the arthritis in your hand, you've got the physical and then you get the change piece. You always work on your Jeep. Now you can't work on your Jeep as much. And what if working on the Jeep was your way of processing hard emotional things? Like when you just needed a release, suddenly you lose that thing and suddenly you get all these things compiling. And, you know, you keep mentioning your age. (laughs) You said this, we wanted to be authentic here. And I used to hate talking about my age because I, I don't feel like I'm 60. Uh-huh. I, I honestly don't. Yeah. I'm trying to be authentic, but yes, yeah. I'm 64. I'm going to be 60. The Social Security Administration is sending me letters. Yeah. <laughs> well, and here's what's crazy: is like, and, and I'm not 64. I'm I'm almost 40. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit behind you, but I feel that same thing. Of yeah. I've never felt my age. I've always felt like, oh man. I'm not there yet. I'm always like, I feel like we're always 10 to 20 years behind our actual age in our mind. Could be. The gift that you bring to the table with that is that we're processing suffering all of our life. You know, when we're kids, we're suffering because we didn't get dessert, right? right? 
when we're a teenager, we might be suffering from more intense things like bullying. Yeah. I had a guest, Shannon Monet, that was one of her big things. As you get older, it's suffering because of, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do in life? When you get into your 30s, it's suffering because what I thought I was going to do in my life is crashing down. So we can have these different seasons, but you have been able to walk through more of those than others have. <laughs> and so that allows you to see things yeah. that you might not have seen before. So you know, you just laid out kind of a basic <laughs> overview of different ways that suffering can exist. But how has your understanding of suffering changed over the years? Yeah, yeah. You know, as most people do in their 20s, they feel like they're invincible. One of the things I didn't mention when we were talking earlier is I was in Christian broadcasting and helped start a couple of radio stations while I was doing church work. Mm -hmm. And I just burned the candle at both ends. Yeah. And uh, I was young, I had lots of energy. Things just didn't stop me. I felt like I was invincible. Yeah. You know, as I grew older, I began to realize that suffering happens for a lot of reasons. A lot of times we're craving things. Mm -hmm. Like you just mentioned as a little kid craving dessert. We crave pleasure. I think as humans, we crave material goods. Mm -hmm. You know, we want immortality. We certainly want good health. That craving for all those things, when we don't get those things, that's when we become disappointed or dissatisfied. Yeah. Suffering is more than just physical. As I mentioned earlier, there's a dissatisfaction. I think a lot of times dissatisfaction, at least in the West here, mm -hmm. you could call it suffering. We're dissatisfied. We're dissatisfied with our job. We're dissatisfied with our spouse or whatever. Mm -hmm. You could call that suffering, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of ways that that can be changed. You can't really change the physical, right? I mean, you can go see a doctor and, you know, maybe get some relief, hopefully get some relief or whatever you're dealing with. But the other things you can change, it's the ability to let go, mm -hmm. the ability to let go of some of those cravings that I mentioned earlier. I think when you let go of some of those things, the things you can't change, <laughs> then you begin to ease up a little bit and you'll have some peace in your life. But, you know, again, with impermanence, you're not always going to have peace. We want peace all the time. But it's not going to be there because of circumstances and things that change. But as you release things, I think that's when you can begin to find out more about yourself, about who you are, mm -hmm. and you can begin to find a level of serenity to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> now, but here's the question, though. How do we get to a place where we can release? Because yeah. we don't want to release by default. Yeah. Sometimes we could be afraid of, wait, what if I release this, but I actually didn't have to? Or what if I release this and things get worse? How do we actually get to a place where it's not just an intellectual, yes, releasing this is good and become something that we have the courage to do or we have the wisdom to do or we have the willingness to do? That's a good question. You know, for me, it's times of meditation and quiet times, mm -hmm. times of prayer, times of meditation. It's really slowing down and just sitting. If you live in our Western society, that's a very difficult thing for Americans to do. Yeah. We're always on the go. We're always comparing each other. You know, competition is there for, you know, whatever we're doing in life, mm -hmm. whether it be houses, our kids, whatever. For me, I'll just tell you my own personal recipe for this is just sitting down and spending quiet time. I do it in the first thing in the morning. And then there's times I'll do it during the day, midday, when I can, when I can carve it out. But you have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. And if you're not intentional about it, it's not going to happen. I'll do it in the evenings as well. So it's not really mystical. Maybe it is mystical, but <laughs> it's a point of, of just getting quiet yeah. and meditating. And, and when I say meditating, it's not like you're driving all the thoughts out of your mind and you're just, mm, you know, I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that you just be quiet and God speaks to you in quietness. Yeah. Your own soul, I think, can speak to you in quietness. But when you're running around doing a bunch of stuff, 
you miss out mm-hmm. and anxiety builds and frustration builds. And there you get back to the suffering cycle. Yeah. yeah as you're saying that, it made me think of my kids. I have young kids and how often they're in a situation where they believe that they're suffering because something horrible has happened or they're not getting what they want. And they just continue talking about it to us. Meanwhile, there have been moments where we're trying to get them to be quiet just long as so we could tell them, actually, no, the situation is fine. Yeah. <laughs> like there have been so many moments where things were actually okay or even better, but they were so focused on what they wanted or how they wanted it to go right. that they wouldn't stop to listen. And they didn't necessarily even trust us. Because in their minds, they know better than the parents know. (laughs) And how often we must do that with God. We're just rambling off at the mouth and in our thoughts of how awful our situation is and how God should be doing this, that, or the other. And God's like, shh, hold on, hold on. I actually know what's going on better than you. Let me explain why I didn't do that or why I'm allowing this. And so I think you're right. Even the simple act of just quieting ourselves can do amazing things because our lives in this world are bigger than us. But we have to get to that place of humility first to believe that there's value in us quieting ourselves. Yeah. I have no problem with praying about it and, and talking to God about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. But I think there needs to be a point where we just be quiet. You know, yeah. Buddhism says that desire and ignorance is the root of suffering. I'm not a Buddhist, but I think there's many things you can get from other people that may not have the same belief system you do. And I think that we have such a burning desire for things. And when I say ignorance, I'm not trying to call it a dirty word. It's just we don't know. Ignorance is just not knowing something. We don't know. We don't know the big picture. We don't know what's going on. And when you become quiet and just breathe, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) it makes a big difference. But you need to be consistent at it. Yeah. You know, the other piece of this releasing that came to my mind as you were talking is, you know, it's hard when all we understand is what we understand, all we know is what we see. But the more that we're able to engage with others in different situations, maybe people who are in harder situations, Mm -hmm. right? We see someone going through cancer and suddenly us not getting the meal we wanted from the restaurant, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Like, does it feel as serious a situation as our friend navigating cancer? And so you've been in numerous roles that have put you in connection with people of all different experiences, from being a pastor, where you're engaging with a whole body of people that run the gamut of situations, to being in radio and doing podcasts and having guests that are coming through different situations, different contexts. And so what have you learned about how to embrace the gift of perspective in order to navigate suffering? I think relationships are the key as you're really touching there. I think when you have relationships, especially if you have one or two close relationships, I have three friends that I've known for over 40 years, you know, and I'm very transparent with them, very authentic. I know that's kind of a buzzword, but we all are, all three of us are. And I think that when you're able to have a relationship with somebody and be open and honest and you can trust them and they can trust you, I think that that opens the door up to getting a better perspective on what you're dealing with. And you're there for them, too. So when they're going through something, you know, you can offer a perspective that maybe they didn't realize or think of. So perspective, you know, there's lots of it out there. I think that it all boils down to having some relationship, at least to the point where you are able to be open and honest with somebody. And you you can't do that with everybody, right? I mean, you can't. I mean, you could, but it's not really the most advisable thing to do, right? right? You know, but I think you need to grow into that and let that develop. Yeah. So I'm going to throw a hard one at you (laughs) because you've been a pastor and you've been in ministry. You know, there's this classic trope, mostly in older movies. I don't see it as much anymore, 
but something horrible is happening somewhere and someone runs into the church and the church is sanctuary. Mm -hmm. You know, you're protected. There's this safety that comes from being within that. And one of the things you mentioned was there was a hard church situation that you navigated. Mm -hmm. And that's actually been a recurring theme (laughs) in many of the conversations I've had. You know, as a pastor, what do we do with the reality that the space that is supposed to be sanctuary for us Mm -hmm. can sometimes be the actual source of our suffering Mm -hmm. or can actually be a place where we don't feel safe to share or feel safe to be our authentic selves? Yeah. That is a really hard one because you would think that the church and people in pastoral leadership are people that, you know, have a high standard. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. Mm -hmm. They're human like everybody else. And there are problems. I'll be open and honest with my situation that I alluded to earlier. I had started a church in Junction City, Kansas, which is a little town by Fort Riley, which is an army base about an hour or so west of Topeka, Kansas. And we started a church there in the year 2000, actually 2001 officially. We were there eight years. We had really success. It was good. My wife's health was not going well. She had back problems and health issues. And and I was getting burned out because I didn't listen to my own advice. Mm. I was working my tail off and I started to get a burnout. The church that I had left here in Tucson, Arizona had offered me a position to come back. My leaders back in Kansas said, well, why don't you take a year off? And I was like, how am I supposed to take a year off? How am I supposed to take a sabbatical? You know, <laughs> hindsight being 2020, that might not have been such a bad idea, but I didn't do it. But we found somebody to take the church over and it's doing well today. But I moved back here in 2008 with my family and had a position offered to me, which is why I moved back. And when I got here, the position wasn't here oh, <laughs> and no. the position was no longer available. And I'm like, okay, I just moved here. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll have something for you soon. I was still a, a part of the church here in Tucson. I was on their, I guess their executive council, even though I wasn't being paid. Mm-hmm. I think I had spoke a couple of times. I was in the leadership team meetings, but the job did not open up and didn't open up for quite a while. And I needed money. <laughs> you talk about living by faith, but something has to happen. We're living in the United States of America and we need to have money <laughs> to pay our bills and to eat, you know, unless you just live off somebody. And so you know, after probably six, seven, eight months, I had to go get a job somewhere. And so I was bitter and frustrated. It's crazy, you know, and I won't give you all the stuff, but what happened was there was a church in town, a different church here in Tucson. It had a split and the guy that split the church came over to the church I was at and had like 300 people. And they thought, huh, let's hire this guy. Mm. We'll get his 300 people. Mm. That's really what happened. So I was left out in the cold because I didn't have 300 people with me. Yeah. I had my wife and my son. Yeah. <laughs> So it was difficult because I ended up getting a secular job, which is not a problem, but it wasn't a very good job. And it was during the recession in 2008, you know, and it was just a rough time. We went through about a two-year period of just really rough. I mean, my wife's health was not good. My emotional health wasn't good. My son was having health issues and it was awful. It was just awful. Worst part of my whole life, you know, and finally... You know, I do streaming video with streamingchurch.tv. Well, I I'd mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast that I'd known the founder, Steve Lacey, and I'd actually done a little bit of work with him when I first came back here, but we started to do streaming video about this time. And so I joined the staff and started to do that. And then my church at the time, the church that was supposed to hire me, <laughs> didn't hire me, said, hey, uh, you know, would you like to come back and do this? And I'm like, well, I'll come back and I'll take this position part time. 
But you need to know right up front that I'm not doing it for you guys. I'm doing it for me. <laughs> and I was very blunt about it. I used to be really blunt. I'm not so blunt anymore. I'm, I'm softened <laughs> up. But the position that they really needed help on was streaming video. Mm. And because I was doing streaming video with this company, I didn't have a lot of experience hands-on with it. Yeah. But I thought this is a great opportunity for me to work for the church. It's only part-time. I'll get better experience doing streaming video. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I was their church online pastor. I don't know, for a couple of years at least. And we took the whole thing to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. So the poor experience turned out to be a good experience. One of the things I didn't do, which I'm glad I didn't do, was I didn't completely cut ties mm -hmm. with this church that basically screwed me. Mm -hmm. Excuse the French. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't cut ties with them. I let them know I was not happy about it. I didn't write letters to the congregation. I didn't get up and scream in front of a service or whatever, you know. Right, right. Uh, I just kind of sat on it. I did talk to the people in leadership about it, but I didn't come on like a heavyweight. And so I did get a job with them. It was a great experience for me. And I think I helped the church. I did it for me and for streamingchurch.tv. And I'm a much better person now today when it comes to helping people with their technical issues, mm -hmm. because I was the church online pastor and did streaming video hands-on. And I did a little bit of it later with somebody else. So how did we get off on that rabbit trail? So the church, they didn't keep their word, you know, and I didn't have a written contract because I knew these guys. I used to work with them for years. I knew them. Yeah. I was close with them for a period of years before I left Kansas. But churches, they're filled with humans. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be careful. And I think you just need to be cautious. And again, you build relationships with people, you know, over time, people you can trust. And you can count on it. The church is going to probably disappoint you. Yeah. We disappoint each other as humans mm -hmm. and the church is filled with humans. You know, I, I still know those guys. Uh, I eventually left the church online position to work for another church. And again, all this is part time. Mm -hmm. I'm just crazy at doing bivocational stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but I do it. <laughs> you know, I still see them. Uh, we've done video shoots over there. I think I interviewed the pastor once or twice on the podcast. You know, he was a good friend of mine years ago. Mm -hmm. He's not a good friend now, mm -hmm. but I'm fine with him. I am friendly with him and he's friendly with me. Yeah. Even when you're being treated wrongly, you need to be careful how you react. Right. I think that would be the lesson with that. I didn't overreact. I could have overreacted and I probably was justified for overreacting if I had done it, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. I worked with them. One of the guys I work with now was on staff at that church. You know, yeah. he didn't have anything to do with the problem I ran into. It was all the senior guy, yeah. but we worked together and you just have to go through life. Yeah. And I think that's an important message, understanding how we react, even if it's a justified situation. Yeah. Because one, that's just good in general as humans. We make mistakes and we would hope that people don't overreact to us, right. you know, that they would extend grace to us. Then there's the element of sometimes there's a longer game thing going on and that a rash reaction can impact the longer game thing. Yeah. And just broadly, our lives are about something more than us. We're called to love God and love others. Yeah. But all that being said, we have to navigate that while being in a hard situation because, you know, what you described is something that I can resonate with. A wrong being done against you within a context of spiritual family. Mm -hmm. And then you remain a part of that spiritual family. And yet it impacts your ability to feel safe, to be present, open process. And you were going through hard things, not just frustration about the job, which it's hard to process that when the people that did it are the ones that you would want to process it with. Yeah, but right. then you had your wife having health issues and you were raising a child and you had just moved and were trying to figure out how to work life. Yeah. And I can resonate with that because I had a really hard 
hard situation with the ministry that was deeply tied to my church and my immediate community and my friend group. And as I was going through that hard stuff, because there were people in that space that had perpetuated the wrongs, Mm -hmm. it was hard to know who can I process this with? Who will actually trust me? Who will listen? Who will see me as causing unnecessary tension? And I too felt the same invitation to not cut ties and run. You know, I felt like God was inviting me to stay at the table. And there are plenty of times where I was like, but God, (laughs) this table is not fun for me. And yet the sense was, is that there was something greater to that. Yeah. And bitterness and resentment, Mm -hmm. it just hurts you. And I'm sure I was bitter and resentful for a little while, Mm -hmm. but I didn't let it take over my life. I mean, my wife still will never go back there. You know, I think you know, sometimes you carry a heavier burden for somebody else, right. you know, when they've been hurt. Right. I don't have bitterness and resentment. I, I forgave them. Mm-hmm. Now I had to practice that for a while. Yeah. I had to practice forgiving them every day. But I think when you release that, and again, it's not easy to do. I, I know there's people listening here probably been badly hurt and it's not easy to, to release that stuff. But again, you just need to see the big picture. And that is holding on to anger and frustration will hurt you more than it will them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the old saying, you know, hanging on to anger is like drinking poison intended for somebody else. It's just not going to happen. It's hard. I was fortunate, Paul, in the sense that the two or three friends that I had that I was very close to, they weren't part of that church. Mm. Well, one of them was, but the other two weren't. And so it was not a problem for me to open up and share with them and yeah. you know talk with them a little bit about it. And even the guy that was part of it, he understood. So, you know, church stuff is hard, man. It's just hard because you expect more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and many times you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, You don't get more, you get less. Yeah, You know, in Christian broadcasting, we would have Christian advertisers with us because we were a commercial Christian station. Some of the Christian advertisers we had, you would think that their companies would have higher morals, mm-hmm. <laughs> better customer service, nicer people. No, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> they weren't. There's a disconnect sometimes. You know, we say we're Christians, but yeah. are we really Christ followers? You yeah. know, so there's a disconnect there sometimes with many people. And, you know, hey, I'm not perfect. Yeah. I've made lots of mistakes and dealt with people inappropriately that if I could go back and redo it, I would, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because on a level, it's a fair expectation to expect the church to operate at a higher level, yeah. to operate with more grace and love and understanding, because that is what scripture calls us to. That's what Christ demonstrated. Yeah. And we also know the reality of what you described. We're also still people. Yeah. You look at scripture and pretty much every character for every great moment they had, they had a bunch of moments that were not so great. Absolutely. Moments where they struggled. Yeah. You know, as someone who has been in a pastoral role, that's been in spiritual leadership. How is it that we can grow closer to this as individual believers, as corporate believers, grow closer to this expectation while holding intention the reality that, you know, as the Apostle Paul says, not that I've achieved perfection, but I continue to run a race, that we will still make mistakes. Right. How can we grow better at being who we should be, knowing that it's hard for us to be that on our own? So when I became a Christian in 1976, I was a part of a thing called the shepherding movement. Mm -hmm. I don't subscribe to it. Mm -hmm. And I was a part of it for a while. And then I tried to be a part of it again because I thought there was some good aspects to it. I would not advise anybody to be a part of a group that called themselves into a shepherding movement. However, (laughs) I do believe in accountability. Mm -hmm. And so I think that where the shepherding movement, I think has gone wrong over the years is the need to control people and the need to manipulate people and, and those kind of things. But I do believe accountability 
is extremely important. You know, I was a part of a pastoral group when I was a senior pastor for about eight years with three other guys, and we held each other accountable. I now, can you lie and can you not disclose everything? Sure. You can cover up stuff. That happens all the time. There's lots of guys out there that say, I'm accountable. And then they get caught, yeah. you know, in adultery or something. And they weren't really being honest. They weren't being transparent, mm -hmm. if we could use that word again. But I think, you know, accountability, in my opinion, is the key to it. Mm -hmm. I think that pastors need to be accountable. I don't think they're higher up than anybody else. They just have a gift and a calling that's different from maybe other people. Yeah. But it doesn't make them better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. it doesn't make them untouchable. Mm -hmm. And so I think accountability in just a short word is that's it. That's where it comes down to. And, you know, look, there's factors involved in it. I mean, you, you got to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the shepherding part of it, you know, that was my ideal dream. I thought, oh, I'll get a Christian community. and We'll all live together and we'll all keep each other accountable and we'll help each other grow spiritually. And, you know, when it comes to controlling people and somebody being the head, mm -hmm. the kingfish guy or whatever, that's out the window. There's a guy I'm going to meet today, a fellow I started in ministry with in the late 70s, who now has a community south of Tucson here with about 150 people. And it's a full-blown cult. Mm. <laughs> it's a full-blown cult. It didn't start that way, but that's the way it is. And two of his daughters have left him. One of them left him about three or four years ago, maybe. And she reached out to me and then the other one, they both were twins, by the way. The other twin just reached out to me yesterday. Mm. I was interviewed for a podcast from a guy that was doing a thing on cults. And she had heard the podcast a couple of years ago and was offended by it that I had said something about her father, mm. which actually I was really nice about it. <laughs> but she reached out to me yesterday and said, I'm so sorry I was rude to you a couple of years ago. Mm. She goes, but I've left the ministry yeah. <laughs> and I need to talk to you. So I'm going to talk to her a little bit, you know. So that's a cult. That's a full-blown shepherding thing. It doesn't yeah. have to be 150 people. It can be 12. Yeah. But I think accountability is probably more than you wanted to hear, right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I think accountability is what you have to do in order to help us grow and help us to really be who we say we're going to be. Yeah. You know, I heard about the shepherding movement a number of years ago when, so I've used the word shepherd a lot because of the APES gifts. You know, some were given to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Yeah. And yeah. so I was using that word and use it in the context of that scripture, but someone else was like, do you, do you know about the shepherding movement? You might want to be careful because someone might be saying that you're part of the shepherding movement. And I was like, oh man. And so I looked into it. I was like, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but I think, you know, you bring up something interesting because oftentimes when someone gets caught up into a cult, on the worst case scenario, or an unhealthy church or ministry or group, oftentimes it comes when they're in this space of sitting and suffering mm -hmm. and they are longing for connection. Yeah. They're longing for a community. They're longing for support. They're longing to be seen. Mm -hmm. And there may be a number of unhealthy churches and even cults that started off from a healthy place mm -hmm. of wanting to address that. Mm -hmm. But then we get into that piece you talked about, we're still humans. <laughs> and in our humanity, other stuff can come into that, whether it is just a very off understanding of healthy practices or a very unhealthy desire for power and control. Yeah. And what can start off as one thing over time, gradually or intentionally becomes something much bigger to the point where you get to where this daughter was, yeah. where there was a moment where she was so convinced that this was good that she called you out on it. Yeah. And then when she was able to see things in a different way, she called you back and said, uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. talk. I was, I was wrong. Yeah. So I think you're right that accountability can help us in this. 
Accountability is basically our way of saying with humility, I don't know everything. I can't solve everything. So I need others to speak into that. And it can protect us from going down these unhealthy paths. What else can help us from going down unhealthy paths towards addressing our suffering? Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm serious. I mean, take the example the guy I just talked about. You know, he's got this group south of Tucson here that if he would have had some healthy therapy Mm -hmm. when he was younger or even now, Mm -hmm. I think that some of this narcissistic stuff and things that he kind of got into may have been short-circuited and he he may have actually could have a healthy community. And, you know, that word gets tossed around a lot. I think sitting down with somebody and being able to talk is important, as we alluded to earlier here and having relationship. But I think sometimes you need a professional to sit down and talk to you. You know, my wife went through some tremendous traumatic stuff when she was growing up. And when I met her years later, she was still processing it, but she had seen therapy. She had seen some good counselors. And so, you know, nobody's perfect, but she was certainly a lot healthier Mm. than she was when she was growing up just Mm. because of the traumatic situation. So, you know, therapy costs money. Usually Mm -hmm. therapy is like anything else. You have good therapists and you have not so good therapists. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that if you look really hard and find somebody that can help you work through some of your problems, because most of the suffering we go through, a lot of it, again, comes back to us. Even if we've been wronged, Mm -hmm. you know, which you have and I have, if we don't process that correctly and we react according to other trauma that we've experienced in the past, it just builds and makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. If you can have a good understanding of how to process your hurts, and then when you are hurt, mm-hmm. and we will be hurt again to some degree, some way, if we can process that right, then I think the suffering won't be as intense and it won't be maybe as long lasting. And uh, we'll get through it on the other side. And, you know, hopefully we can grow through it. You know, I mean, the traumatic thing that I went through and didn't have a job when I came back here, I end up now in a great situation, Mm -hmm. you know, but if you would have told me that when I first was here and the two years of misery we had, I don't know if I would have believed you, but now I'm really glad that I went through all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I could avoid it, I would have, but you know, I went through it and I responded fairly well with it, I guess. So, you know, now I'm sitting in a place where I feel good about my family. I feel good about my life. Mm-hmm. I went through it. I got through it. So, and that's another thing to say, Paul, as we talk about suffering is, you know, as we talked about change and impermanence, usually the suffering we have will eventually change. Yeah. Eventually what we're going through right now, which is hard, in most cases, you know, that's going to change. Yeah. It's going to probably get better. Now, I mean, I understand there's exceptions to that with cancer and health issues maybe aren't going to get better. But in most cases, in those other things, you know, we need to see the big picture again. And that is we're not always going to be suffering with this particular situation. Yeah. And there's something important, too, in in what you just said and what you said earlier about how like it's worked out. It's a good situation. But if someone had told you that in the midst of the two years, it would have been hard for you to believe or worse, it would have just come across as a really annoying platitude. Like, ah, God knows the plans he has for you, Phil, and he's going to work this out. It's like, yeah. I'm a year into this and uh, I don't know what he's doing. You know, I think what we can see on the back end is how God has the capacity to bring good out of evil, to bring restoration. There's a passage that talks about the fields that the locusts have eaten, I will restore, right? And the classic example of this is Joseph went through tremendous suffering because of an injustice. It wasn't that God caused this. It was that his brothers and their free will decided to do something awful. You know, the people at the church ended up their free will. It wasn't that God told them, hey, you promised Phil a job, but don't give it to him. It's 
for whatever reasons, they made the decisions they made. So it's not that God causes the suffering, but he knows how to bring restoration from it. He knows how to use it for good. What man intended for evil, God used for good. But it's hard because, like you said earlier, it's a 2020 thing sometimes. <laughs> it's a thing we can look at in mm -hmm. hindsight. And it's not until we grow in spiritual maturity that we have had a number of experiences under our belt that we can begin to believe and trust that in the midst rather than having to only come to that revelation on yeah. the backside. Yeah. yeah. The next thing that comes our way that may not be so pleasant, I would hope that I would have the courage and have the foresight to realize, okay, this is happening, mm -hmm. but it's not going to happen forever. It's yeah. like many times we have, what is it, myopia? We're nearsighted. Right. We can't see. <laughs> but I think that that's true spiritually. Sometimes we don't see far. We just see what's in front of us and we yeah. don't see anything further down there. So I would hope that over these years that, you know, whatever we come across, you know, my son just had a bout with COVID, mm. was in the hospital last year for a couple of weeks, and it was a scary time for us. But, you know, I was like, well, I can't fix them, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's going to be a situation where we're just going to have to trust mm -hmm. whatever happens, happens, and yeah. we're going to get through this thing. You yeah. know? And he did. He got through it and he's doing OK. It's a situation where I think we need to realize that a lot of what we're going through is temporary, yeah. even though it might be a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. It's still temporary in the big picture. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's so hard as you were saying that it made me think of the passages that talk about how they have eyes but can't see. Right. You know, you said, I hope that I'll be able to see. I hope the myopia won't set in. Right. I think the reality is, is that God gives us the capacity to see, but sometimes we choose the myopia because we don't want to focus in. We want to keep the things blurry because what we're learning is that we're being invited to accept suffering rather than it being fixed immediately. To say something will eventually end is also to say, but it will last for some amount of time. Yeah. We're having to see and accept the reality that you yeah. had to accept that I can't just cut these people off. God is inviting me to stay in relationship, to continue to show love and to be at least cordial, right? And like Joseph with his brothers had to continue to show love, even though in his humanity, he could have killed them, <laughs> right? He had the power to do that. And so sometimes we don't want to utilize this new vision God has given us because we don't want to accept what he's inviting us to see. And so I think that's the other part of maturity is to trust that it's still good in God's ultimate plan. It's still wise in God's ultimate plan. And that sometimes we see things that we don't like, but it's working towards something bigger. Yeah. So I want you to imagine that somebody's listening that is currently sitting and suffering, and maybe they're in a similar situation as what you were in. Somebody gave them their word for something and didn't follow through, and now they're in a hard situation. You know, they moved or they've given up something, and now they're in that frustrating place that you were in for two years. What would you say if you could say something to them right now? I would say, be careful that you don't walk and move in bitterness and resentment. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is really hard when you're in that situation. But sometimes you have to make hard choices right. and the hard choice is to forgive those people or that person that may have wronged you. Again, if you don't do it, it hurts you. The forgiveness part may never affect them at all. Mm -hmm. They may not even know, yeah. but they probably don't even know other things, you know. So it's really walking in the ability to really get quiet and to be still. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying you don't have anger. Sometimes you need to sit with your anger. You need to recognize your anger. And a lot of times we don't even recognize it. You know, we're angry. We don't recognize we're angry. Yeah. We're bitter, but we don't recognize we're bitter. But it comes out in the things we say and do, and it affects us physically as well as emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, sit and be quiet and recognize, hey, you're angry. You have a right to be angry. Mm -hmm. You know, you probably have a right to be bitter. But if you're able to be quiet and able to, and this takes time and practice, 
This is all part of the meditation thing, Paul, that I get into is you can kind of step away from that a little bit and look at that anger and go, why am I angry? Well, I'm angry because now I don't have an income. (laughs) Now I can't take care of my family. Now I don't have a purpose, whatever, you know, and just look at some of those things, but try to see it from an unbiased perspective. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done, (laughs) but an unbiased perspective where you look at those emotions, whatever it is, you know, to practice it. The next time you're really happy and thrilled about something, Stop for a moment and ask yourself, why am I so happy about this? Why am I so thrilled about this? To step away from it a little bit and analyze it. Just get a little analytical at times. And you got to be quiet to do that. And look at, well, what's the root of this? What's the root of your anger? What's the root of your happiness? Well, guess what? It's going to change eventually. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be happy eventually. you know. So look at it and realize, okay, these things come and go. Uh, they come and go. But look, it's not easy. Getting back to your example, somebody that's been wronged and hurt. You know, it's the last thing you want to hear. Well, just forgive them. Well, just don't be angry. Uh, Well, first of all, you can be angry, but you do need to forgive them. I'm just going to say that, you know, but uh, it's not easy. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's a jagged little pill that uh, Alanis Morissette would say. And it's, it's hard, you know, but sit through it and you'll get through it. You will get through it. There's hope. There's something at the end of the tunnel. You know, there's light. Hopefully it's not a train. There's something, you know, at the end of the tunnel and this too shall pass. Is one of the things my dad used to say, this too shall pass. And it's good to kind of hang on to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say somebody's listening and they're like, oh man, I, I love what Phil's saying and I want to connect with them more. If somebody want to connect with you or your podcast or streamingchurch.tv, what's the best way for them to do that? You can just send me an email. That's fine. It's Phil, P-H-I-L, Phil at streamingchurch.tv. Or you can just go to the website, streamingchurch.tv. And you can reach out and just click the contact thing. And, you know, if I can help somebody in any way, I'm more than happy to do that. We've got a great team of people, you know, relating to this subject of suffering. I'll be happy to talk to anybody if I can help. If you do have technical things that you want to talk about or streaming video for your church or your ministry, we can certainly do that as well. Part of what I feel like I'm here on earth for is to help people, is to help people connect with their creator, to help people connect with each other. And also to help people connect with themselves, because a lot of times we don't realize what's going on inside of here. We don't realize what's happening. And that's why I emphasized so much earlier, Paul, about you know sitting and just being quiet yeah. and meditating and praying and just don't be in a hurry to do anything. Mm-hmm. If you can do that on a regular basis, you'll start to see things change in your life. Yeah. And as we close out, is there anything else God's putting in your heart that you feel like he's inviting you to share? I think this is good. I think I've worn everybody out enough (laughs) with my little stories. You know, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Paul. Enjoyed having you on our podcast. And one of the things I neglected to say on this podcast was I had a history of being with Youth with a Mission, Mm -hmm. something that you're with. You know, I think by and large, it's a good organization. I think stepping out and doing things according to what you feel like God's put on your heart to do, I just don't think you ever lose. I think when you step out and do something on faith, you're going to win. It may not always turn out the way you think it's going to turn out, but you're going to be better. You're going to be a better person. You're going to grow spiritually. You're going to to touch other people's lives and your life is going to change when you step out and just do things. doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are, 
we are all prone to spiritual myopia. Take the disciples. They were literally walking with and hearing from Jesus. Yet they had this interaction in Mark 8, starting with verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus was immensely patient with his disciples, and yet too often they had eyes but failed to see and ears but failed to hear. And if we're honest, we are the same way. Even though my kids wear glasses now, we often have to remind them because too often they choose not to wear them. Whether it's because they're uncomfortable or because they want to be active, they will intentionally choose poor eyesight. And even though Jesus has given us so much clear wisdom, we too often choose poor eyesight. We see this in Peter in Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, where Paul says this, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, the Spirit had given Peter the ability to see the truth, that he was meant to love and serve the Gentiles as well as the Jews, that there was not meant to be a differentiation. And what we find is he is living into that, eating with them, until James and the circumcision party arrive. At that point, Peter chose spiritual myopia. He took off the glasses that God had given him and became very nearsighted, only thinking of what James would say, of what the circumcision party would say. And what he failed to notice was what was ahead, that he would lead the Jews and even Barnabas astray. And not just that. We don't hear it in the text, but this must have crushed the Gentiles. This must have confused them. This must have left them feeling as lesser or unwanted. Now we know enough about Peter to know that he would not want to intentionally hurt anyone or lead anyone astray. And yet his spiritual myopia leads to just that. What I appreciate about Phil's story is it reveals the danger of us failing to address our spiritual nearsightedness. If we are only focusing on what is right ahead, fear will guide us rather than the promises of God. When spiritual leaders are caught up in spiritual nearsightedness, they can wound others as Phil was wounded. And the reality is, is we are being invited to have eyes to see and ears to hear, but we have to choose to see clearly. So I invite you to not be like my kids, who frequently forget to wear their glasses or intentionally take them off. And I understand that sometimes what God shows us is uncomfortable, is confusing, is frightening, is costly. I can understand why we might not want to see beyond what's here and now. But the eternal full life that God is inviting us to, the eternal reality that he is inviting us to understand, is worth the discomfort. 
because the alternative can cause us to inflict harm we would have never desired to inflict. Right now, in the midst of your suffering, you may have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear, but it doesn't have to be that way. God is ready to address your spiritual myopia, if you're willing. And I know from experience, when we choose to embrace what God brings in that clarity, it utterly alters our suffering. So whatever you're going through, invite God to give you eyes to see, and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com slash revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of their music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?